Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, The Suffering and Triumph of Jesus, today. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Convincing Proof That Gives Hope. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of these same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You know, for the next three days, I want to speak about the resurrection of Jesus. It's high time. I want to speak about three benefits of the resurrection. The first is hope, the second is regeneration, and the third is the resurrection of our raised body. So let's talk about certainty and hope. You know, according to the writer of Hebrews, Jesus came to deliver us from a lifetime of slavery to the fear of death. It was Max Licato who once wrote, the fear of death has filled a thousand prisons. You can't see the walls, you can't see the warden, you can't see the locks, but you can see the prisoners. You can see them as they sit on their bunks and bemoan their fate. They want to live, but they can't because they're doomed to do what they most want to avoid. They will die. You know, the day that Christ was raised from the dead, he defeated the greatest enemy that had ever plagued humanity. This is a word of hope that all desperately need to hear. Many people have allowed their lives to be filled with fear and hopelessness and a frantic attempt to delay death as long as possible. So we fear the word cancer and words like terminal and there's nothing we can do for you. We try to delay aging and we try to tell ourselves that we have a long life to live yet. 2,000 years ago, death was once defeated by one man. And I want to begin by offering up the evidence that it was so. Indeed, let me offer up six pieces of evidence. First, consider the evidence of the empty tomb. It needs to be said at the outset that the death of Jesus devastated the followers of Jesus. I mean, they'd watched him ride into Jerusalem only a week earlier. They convinced that, that he would defeat Rome and set up his throne in Jerusalem where he would rule the world. And five days later, they watched him cruelly tortured and killed on a Roman cross. And all hope that this was the Messiah was crushed. And the dead and lifeless and abused body of Jesus of Nazareth was dragged down off the cross and wrapped in linen clothes and laid in a tomb. And the disciples were very much like the groups of people that we've heard of who believe that the end of the world would come on a given day, only to find out that the day arrives and the next day comes and life goes on. Now, it was late Saturday evening that a group of women, it was Mary Magdalene, it was Mary, the wife of James and Salome, they go back to the tomb where they had seen Christ's body laid on Friday at sundown. And it was late, and by the time that they arrived at the tomb, Mark 16, verse 2 tells us that the tip of the sun had actually appeared above the horizon. But something remarkable had already happened before they got there. Matthew 28, verses 2 to 4 says, There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The earthquake probably was not extensive. The women don't seem to have noticed. It doesn't seem to have damaged anything in Jerusalem. But the earthquake broke the seal placed over the stone, and the stone had rolled down the slanted groove. 
The tomb lay open with guards lying on the ground. The woman approached completely amazed by what they were seeing. The corpse of Jesus was gone. The stone was open. The, the guards were laying unconscious by an empty tomb. And they must have had to step over the bodies lying on the ground to enter the tomb. And Luke tells us what happened next in Luke 24, 4 to 6. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's risen. And what follows is interesting to say the least. The story was undoubtedly so fantastic that the women had some difficulty telling it the way it happened. I remember, it's a lot of years ago now, but then U.S. President Jimmy Carter told reporters a story about how he had gone canoeing and a rabbit had swum up to his canoe and attacked it, and he said he had to fight it off with his paddle. <laughs> I remember thinking then, you know, if that happened to me, I sure wouldn't tell anyone about it. You know, in a real way, that's what happened to the women. They were not guilty of exaggeration. If anything, they're guilty of refusing to tell this amazing story lest they think they're crazy. And so John 20 verse 2 tells us that Mary Magdalene said, So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And that's the first piece of evidence. Tomb is empty. Where did the body go? The amazing thing about the Christian faith is that there is no burial place for its founder. All great men and women in history have tombs, but Jesus has none. No body was left behind, only an empty tomb. Has death been defeated? Well, let's look at the second piece of evidence. So second, the grave clothes were left untouched. I'm reading John chapter 20, verses 4 to 9. Both of them were running together, and the other disciple outran Peter and, and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been laid on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. You know, after being told of the empty tomb, both Peter and John ran to the tomb. And John arrived first because he was younger and faster. But when he got there, all he did was stand at the entrance of the tomb. He must have been amazed. No doubt the soldiers are gone by now. There is no guard. An open door was all that greeted them. And I have no doubt that he just stood there and stared. He had no idea what to make of it. And he's afraid to go inside. And Peter got there, and he went inside, and John followed and went inside the tomb looking intently at the winding sheet. Bodies would have been placed on a stone ledge, and the entire body would have been wrapped tightly with linen sheets. But Peter noticed something that was curious. Instead of finding the grave cloth spread out in a jumbled heap, it was still wrapped together in one spot. And on top of that, the long kerchief that would have been wound around the head was not unwound and tossed aside. It was also wrapped together, lying right above the other wrappings. In other words, no one had removed the grave cloths in the normal manner. It was as if the body had simply passed right out of the head cloth and the shroud and, and left the cloths empty. As the two men were staring at this amazing sight, several thoughts must have dawned on them. 
I mean, first of all, this could not be the work of grave robbers. They would have stripped the body completely, leaving everything in a heap, or they would have taken the body, grave clothes and all. And a close examination shows that it seemed as if the body had simply left the tomb and left the grave clothes on its own power, passing right through those layers of cloth without unwrapping them at all. And John, he just comes to a conclusion. Right there on that morning, he's standing inside the empty tomb. He concludes that death has been unable to claim a victim. Death has lost its grip. Somehow, and and we don't know exactly how, but, but somehow he knows that Jesus must have conquered death and he was alive. Well, those are the first two pieces of evidence on that Easter Sunday morning. An empty tomb and a most interesting arrangement of burial cloths. But now comes a most startling piece of evidence. See, third, the evidence of personal eyewitness encounters with Jesus. You know, for some reason, I mean, Peter and John have not realized that Mary Magdalene has followed them. Maybe she got there later investigating the scene again. I mean, after all, how could she stay away? I mean, Mary had loved Jesus. Jesus had cast out seven demons from her, and she had accompanied Jesus along with the disciples on his ministry. And she had watched Jesus as Jesus was crucified, and now his grave was empty, and the scene was amazing. And what was the answer to that? And John tells us what happens next. I'm reading John chapter 20, verses 10 to 13. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. You see, up to this moment, please notice that Mary has absolutely no expectation of finding Jesus alive there. As far as she's concerned, he's dead. And any encounter at the tomb was either going to be an encounter with a soldier or a cemetery gardener or another mourner, but she was not anticipating the resurrection. And that little fact strengthens the case of why it is that we know for certain that Jesus was in fact raised from the dead. Easter is a pivotal time in the life of a Christian. The foundation of our faith relies on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Back to the Bible Canada has a two-part video series, an Easter series, available this week on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel, as well as backtothebible.ca. Special musical guests Brian Dirksen and Stephanie Radekop will provide inspirational music and you'll be refreshed and strengthened in your walk with Jesus under the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfell. You'll be reminded that Easter offers hope, forgiveness, love, and the promise of eternal life with our Savior. So remember, join us for an Easter series right here on backtothebiblecanada.ca or join us on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call one 800 663 2425. I'm reading John 20, verses 14 to 16. You know, Mary's at the tomb of Jesus and has just told a man whom she doesn't recognize as an angel that someone has taken the body of Jesus. I'm reading now from verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. 
but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, this is the first encounter that anyone had with Jesus after his death. It's the encounter of a woman who has already seen an angel, but is not sure of what she's been seeing. Now she has seen an empty tomb, and she simply begins to weep. See, the problem with death is that when it happens, it simply drains away all joy. It's so final. You can't argue with death. It claims its victims, and it it doesn't care how you feel or how much you love or how you'd like to change things. Death makes no deals with us. Death cares little for us. Death simply robs us, and it never repays us. Death is loss. You know, the musician Van Morrison wrote, Precious time is slipping away. You're only queen or king for a day. It doesn't matter to which God you pray. Precious time is slipping away. And it's death. It comes to atheists. It comes to Christians, to Buddhists and Hindus. Death reduces all to tears, to sorrow, and even to emptiness. You know, it seemed that stories of empty tombs and strange configurations of grave clothes were not enough for Mary. She might have said, you can believe what you want, but when you're standing beside a tomb, you'll believe in death for sure. And she began to cry. And there are two angels there, but even that, even angels, even signs from heaven, none of that takes away the sting and the finality and the ugliness of death. And then the remarkable, Jesus is standing right there. But she doesn't see him. She sees a gardener until he says her name, Mary. And that's how he always said her name. And that one word, that one mention of her name, made her whole being leap to life. It's hard to say with Van Morrison that it doesn't matter to which God you pray when you're standing with the man who was dead and now is alive. I mean, that evidence is just overpowering. Some of you have heard of the account that apparently took place in a Russian Orthodox church during the beginning of the communist era. Churches were being shut down. People were being told that religion was the opiate of the people. We were nothing other than the product of random choices of nature, a a fluke of evolution. Atheism was all that was left. But this Orthodox church in Moscow was still open, but on an Easter Sunday morning, the communists were coming to church. They informed the priest that they would present a lengthy lecture on atheism that Easter Sunday morning, and they did. Not only did they tell of atheism, but they also warned of the foolishness of belief, and after they were done, they allowed the priest a five-minute rebuttal. But he didn't need five minutes. In fact, he didn't even need one minute. He simply declared a three-word sentence. He is risen, he said. And that packed church roared back. He is risen indeed. And that's Easter. It's the evidence of an empty tomb, of untouched grave clothes, and of personal eyewitness encounters. This is not a philosophical discussion about the existence of God and the reality of the meaning of death. We're not Christians because we're smarter than others and we figured out more about God than others. We're Christians because Christ has been raised from the dead. There is a faith based on a personal encounter with the risen Jesus. But let me add more. Fourth, we see the evidence of a host of eyewitnesses. It's not just one woman, Mary. If that had been the case, we might say she was mistaken. But then there is the testimony of the rest. 
You see, Luke 24, 13 to 25, gives a long encounter of two of Jesus' disciples spending an afternoon and an evening with Jesus as he taught them and he ate with them. And then there are the other women, and then the other disciples. And as Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, the 500 who all saw him at one time. The eyewitness accounts were growing. It's not just one person. It's not just an empty tomb and strange burial cloth or a chance encounter here and there. It's so many people. But there's another bit of evidence that we must not pass over. Fifth, there is the evidence of the fulfillment of prophecy. Consider what Isaiah the prophet said, 750 years before Christ. Isaiah 53 verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. See, one thing's certain. Long before Jesus arrived as a baby, prophets had already foretold his life, his death, and his resurrection. So let's consider more evidence. See, we've seen the empty tomb, strange grave clothes, personal eyewitnesses, people claiming to spend an afternoon with him, being taught by him, eating with him, the prophetic word of the Old Testament scriptures, and sixth, the evidence of the physical body of Jesus. See, I want to stop here and say something I don't want anyone to miss. Christians don't just believe in life after death. A lot of people believe in that. Christians believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. Jesus didn't just rise spiritually, he rose bodily. His body rose. Now, to be sure, his body has some changes in it after death. He seems to be able to go through locked doors, and later on, we're told that his body is incorruptible. It would never die again. Yet it was a body of genuine flesh and bones, a body still marked by the physical effects of the crucifixion. He was recognized. He ate. He was physical. He was not a spirit. You could examine him. Later, John has to say, our hands handled him. We touched him. He had defeated death bodily. And by the way, that is our hope. Job of old put it this way. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it will be raised imperishable. Did you hear that? The body was raised. It will be vastly improved to be sure, but it is the body. And after his resurrection, Jesus could be observed eating and talking and acting in a real world. Thomas, one of the twelve, examined him thoroughly, put his hands into his side, saw the marks where the crucifixion were. No, no, this is not a spirit or an apparition. So let me be clear. When I say that death has been defeated, I don't mean a view that spirits live on after the death of the body. I mean that the body itself was raised and that the body was transformed from one of weakness and subject to illness and death into a body that is indestructible. I am saying that when Jesus was raised, he was bodily raised. And that's why there is no grave. That's why the grave is empty. And it is this that gives hope to all who trust in him. I'll say more about that in the next two days, but for now, let's just concentrate on that hope. You know, some time ago, I was engaged in a conversation with a fellow pastor. We're talking about a woman we both knew, and I'm going to call her Ruth. 
Ruth loved Jesus and believed in the resurrection, but she was now an old woman and she was dying. And my pastor friend called the home and Ruth's sister answered and he said, how's Ruth doing today? She responded, Ruth's going downhill quite quickly. And then from the background, my pastor friend heard Ruth's very weak voice. She said, no, I'm going uphill very quickly. You know, was Ruth deluded? It's the most important question we can ask. Death is the great enemy of humanity. Every one of us lives with the notion that death always stalks us. It always hunts us, and we can't escape. And some of us are terrified, and some try to ignore it, but death will not ignore us. And Easter morning gives us convincing proof that in one case, death has been defeated. But it's not enough to know that. But of course, that might not mean a lot, you see. But it means everything if Christ not only died for you, but he also was raised for you. You see, if his resurrection was not just the defeat of his death, but it was also the defeat of the death of all who hope in him, then Ruth was right. She believed that as Christ was raised bodily, so also would she be raised. That moment, everything changes. The fear of death is stilled, for death has lost its power. Christ has defeated it, and that is objectively true. The death and resurrection of Jesus shows us that Christ is who he says he is. He has defeated death and therefore has provided us with convincing proof that the hope that we have is an objective hope. It is a real hope. We can count on the resurrection of Jesus. John, I think what you're telling us is that we can know with absolute certainty that Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to argue that obviously I think there's a number of ways to come to certainty. And um, I, I guess, you know, Ben, I, I don't know. I mean, you and I weren't there when Christ was raised from the dead, but certainly the evidence points that way. And I think overwhelmingly uh, anyone who has an open mind should come to the conclusion that this indeed did happen. Furthermore, I would say from a believer that the Holy Spirit himself uh, comes and affirms that truth in our hearts so that every truth that we know is actually um, the truth that has been brought to us by God. Ultimately, God is truth and the source of all truth. So, uh, yes, God, uh, Christ rose bodily. We ought to think about the resurrection constantly. And those of us who doubt ought to go back at the evidence and have a look at it afresh and realize that our doubts can be assuaged. I believe. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This month, Dr. Neufeld will continue his video series, The Missionary God, which airs weekly on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. We believe these messages are so important for believers that we want to send you the expanded message series on CD for free. We'll explore questions like, why is it that God can allow so much suffering in the world? And why has God commanded us to make disciples of all nations? There are so many challenging questions, and though they may make us feel uncomfortable at times, they require Bible-focused responses. So join us this month on air, online, via podcast, or listen on the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. Don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of this important series, 
by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.